Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all of you out there. In today's episode, Sona, Celia, and I will be discussing some of the best shows of the year, shows we've covered here in the podcast and others we have not. And then we'll be talking about the seventh episode of Fleischman is in Trouble. This is the episode where we find out the answer to the mystery of Rachel's disappearance. So a perfect time to catch up on the show if you have not yet caught up on it. And one of the best shows of the year, a little bit overlooked because it's wrapping up here right at the very end. Before we get to that, I do want to thank all of you for listening throughout this year. Our over-under on total listeners this year is going to be just under 50,000. And I'd love to get that to 100,000 next year. So if you can recommend one of our podcasts to friends and family that you're seeing during this holiday weekend or week, or check out our back catalog of episodes for shows you may be interested in. We'll have some suggestions when we get into the best shows of the year. This conversation will actually run over into next week, where we'll get into best performers, etc. In this episode, we primarily talk about the shows themselves, and we'll get to that conversation in just another moment. Before that, I have some viewer guide recommendations for all of you out there who are looking for things to watch over this winter break. If you're going out to the theaters, I'd recommend you see the new Avatar movie. After 13 years, James Cameron is back with this sequel to the previous Avatar. I was a fan of that first Avatar film, but in retrospect wondered if it was just the spectacle of 3D. And my answer to that after this film is yes. (laughs) In that, I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed these characters. I was surprised to realize I was vested somewhat in this mythology, even though I have rarely revisited that original film. But the second yes is that I honestly think that seeing this in the largest possible screen, I saw it in IMAX 3D, was one of those experiences of seeing something in a theater that you remember for your film-going lifetime. If that matters to you, if you care about the state of the art in special effects, that alone should make you want to run out and watch this film. But it's not the only reason. I actually found the film to be one of those rare instances, and maybe true to Cameron's films in general, that picks up the pace and gets better as it goes along. The first hour, a lot of setting up. This is a three-hour movie that does not feel long, by the way. But the first hour, a lot of setting up of the plot for this film and for future films, and resolving to some extent the loose ends from the original Avatar film. But really, the price of admission is worth it simply for the second hour of the film where we explore this underwater world of Pandora. These are literally the most stunning visuals I've seen on a screen in many, many years. And then once again, the final hour, this is a one hour approximately protracted action sequence that is everything you've seen in a James Cameron film before, like he's done before with Terminator 2 or in The Abyss or in Titanic or in the first Avatar. But it's almost a culmination of all those previous films in this incredible, ever-escalating action sequence that honestly had me on the edge of my seat. And one of those rare circumstances where everything that has been laid out previously, just these little breadcrumbs, just little rules of this world, pay off beautifully in this final sequence. It is so satisfying. The audience was pumping their fists, jumping out of their seats. It is a real crowd pleaser and just one of the most entertaining films I've seen all year. Your mileage may vary, but I would guarantee you, if you hate the film, you will still be awestruck by the final hour incredible action action sequence, which is not one action sequence. It's one compounding on another, compounding on another. It's incredible. So do check that out. Try to see it in the best screen you can. Watch it in 3D. This is not the post-conversion crappy 3D that we've gotten used to that was kind of a cash grab after Avatar. This really shows you what is possible, what you can do in 3D. It doesn't even feel like you're watching 3D. It feels so immersive. Highly recommend, not even the quality of the film, to be honest with you. I recommend the experience of seeing this in a large screen, a bright and large format IMAX, ideally, screen, if you can get to one. Definitely do not see it in one of those little closet third or fourth level screens that are this fake 3D uh, where the screen is going to be too dark to even watch with your glasses on. Do see it on one of the larger format screens. Okay, another recommendation, just available on Netflix this very day that I'm dropping this episode, Glass Onion. Ryan Johnson, after the massive success of Knives Out, 
was given $300 million by Netflix to make two sequels to that film. It did actually play in theaters, which is where I saw it before this release around the Thanksgiving weekend and did very well for that one week that it was out, but then was pulled so that it would have a second premiere on Netflix. And I'm sure if you have Netflix, you have seen ads for this. It's been pushed to you already. And I'm sure it will have huge, huge, huge numbers this weekend. Probably doesn't need my assistance, but this is very entertaining. It is very much an Agatha Christie style film. The premise is that a egotistical billionaire has invited some of his friends and frenemies to a Greek island for a game of basically what your kids play now, Among Us, or in the olden days, Mafia, or Werewolves Within. Who's the killer, basically? And the billionaire himself, played by Edward Norton, in a very entertaining performance. This is a star-studded cast, which includes, of course, Daniel Craig, returning from the first film, Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista, Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., and other recognizable actors, and some cameos as well from some very famous celebrities, which I won't spoil here. For me, this is very entertaining, and you may have noticed some social commentary in the Knives Out film, the original. If there's some here, it is about how we, as a culture, probably over-idolize these billionaire, would-be geniuses. And the corollary here is definitely to Elon Musk. This is before the whole Twitter situation. This film was shot way before these recent events with Musk. And by the way, the toxicity of the culture in general is also another theme here because he is surrounded by these sycophantic celebrities who have all made their reputations by being intentionally trollish. And this is something that he seems to want to encourage. So all of that is relevant to today, but this is just really primarily a flashy and stylish and often funny Agatha Christie style caper and has a very satisfying payoff. It has a reboot to the plot in the middle, different than the first film, which for those who've seen it, and I won't spoil it here if you haven't, but I definitely recommend you track it down, has a bit of a revelation in the center of the film that pretty much reboots the entire plot in a very entertaining way. This film does a similar thing in a completely different way. Not as satisfying for me. Across the board, not as satisfying, I would say, as that first Knives Out film. But nonetheless, very funny, very stylish, lots of attractive stars to look at, a lot of entertaining performances, and I'm sure it'll be very popular, and I do recommend it. A third thing I'd recommend is, on HBO Max, The Banshees of Inishirin. This features Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, reuniting with writer-director Martin McDonough. They both work together in In Bruges, and this is McDonough's first film since his hugely successful Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This film is much smaller scale than that one and features additional great performers here, just to call out a couple, Carrie Condon as Colin Farrell's sister and Barry Keoghan as one of his best friends. This film is hysterically funny for the first hour of it and then takes a dark turn. And Colin Farrell really shows the range of his acting here as things get darker in the second half. This is an acquired taste. This is not going to be the kind of populist film that Avatar or uh, The Glass Onion film was going to be. But if you have liked some of those other films that I mentioned, this is very interesting. It will definitely have Oscar nominations for these performances and for the screenplay and has something else going on too. It's not just a film about these two friends having a falling out after a lifetime of friendship. Brendan Gleeson is simply having some kind of existential crisis and wants to create something. He wants to make something. He doesn't want to waste his time just talking to his best friend anymore. And they basically have a breakup, like two kids in the playground. And Colin Farrell's character simply cannot understand it and can't deal with it. And this is not just a comedy that curdles over time. It happens to take place in 1923 at the height of the Irish Civil War. So if you're looking for something more thematically rich in this film, it is almost a fable or it plays like a fable about how little things, little differences, little disagreements can start off seeming like minor things and eventually turn into these differences that we cannot overcome, rip friends apart, and if you want to look at the correlation to the Irish Civil War, these are scars in a nation that lasts forever. And I think McDonough is correlating to this current political moment we're in where friends sometimes can't talk anymore, especially during the holidays. We just can't talk about certain topics anymore We have these little internal civil wars amongst our friend groups, how easy it is to slip from a civil society to an uncivil society. It's also hysterically funny, even though it is 
low-key tragic over the course of its run. So if that sounds intriguing to you, I do recommend that as well. It's very smart. It's got great performances. It looks incredible, beautiful cinematography of this idyllic Irish locale. And it has some thoughts on its mind, not only some of this political metaphor, but just this crisis we have in this country and probably around the world of older men really breaking up with their friends. Honestly, older men simply not having friendship anymore and how hard it is to maintain that male friendship later in life. So three recommendations, three things that are easily available for you to watch during this holiday break. The Banshees of Inishirin on HBO, Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel on Netflix, and of course, Avatar The Way of Water at your local movie theater, hopefully in a very, very large format. Before we get to the conversation proper, a brief reminder that we will be starting our next recap series, mid-January, covering two different shows. One, The Last of Us on HBO Max, the new post-apocalyptic thriller from the creators of the brilliant miniseries Chernobyl, starring Pedro Pascal, amongst others, and the second and final season of Your Honor, the Brian Cranston show on Showtime. So subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. Have a Merry Christmas. Enjoy the conversation. And I'll talk to you soon. I wanted to have kind of a little recap of the year, talking about shows that we covered here on the show. And maybe to get things going, I wanted to start with a list that I have here in front of me. Let me just refresh it because there's always new critics being added. So this is Metacritic. I prefer Metacritic to Rotten Tomatoes, everybody out there. Just so you know, Rotten Tomatoes is based on percentages of positive reviews, meaning that basically like three stars out of five is considered a positive review, but even though it's a mild one. So you might see it like a movie, you'll have like a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and you go to Metacritic and it has like a 60 and you say, how is this possible? How do they only 60% of critics over here, but a hundred percent of critics there. And the difference is that Metacritic, the number they're giving you is the average grade. So for example, you could have given the film a passing grade or a TV show passing grade, but it could be like, eh, it's okay. And if everybody says, eh, it's okay, it gets 100% of Rotten Tomatoes, but it gets like a more ambiguous score. It's showing that when something gets a 90 on Metacritic, it means that that got an A. The average grade was an A. That's pretty impressive, right? Rather than 100% where everybody gave it a C plus, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not as not as enthusiastic. They compile every single year. They take everybody's top 10 lists of all the critics that contribute here, and they rank them based on how many number ones they have, how many times they're in the second uh, in the top 10, how many times they're honorable mentions. They give it a point value and they put a list of shows together. So I was going to use this as a starting point to have this conversation about best of the year. Pretty much everybody here on the podcast can talk to, to these shows in some configuration. So I'll start off with the top four shows of the year here on this list, which are consensus picks. They're on more than half of all the top 10 lists. Number one, a show we covered here on the show, It's very popular for us too, by the way, Severance. I love Severance. I probably would have put this at number one. I think it's not only the fact that the show is popular and entertaining, that when you have something that is surprising, like something that is doing something a little bit different, there obviously is going to be a bias towards it. And for all those reasons, I think it deserves to be here at number one. And both of you have seen this show, correct? Yes. Yep. I was on the podcast with you, Victor. <laughs> well, I know I was that was that was more for Celia than it was for Sona. But yes, anybody out there who hasn't caught up on our severance episodes, and for some reason, maybe because this is popping up on top 10 lists, I have seen a lot of people downloading our severance episodes recently. So maybe people are just catching up on it now. But do check that out if you haven't. You know, obviously, you know, we haven't seen, we're not like critics and have watched hundreds of shows this year. But Sona, would you have put this near the top of your list or at the top of your list? Uh, so here's the thing. I understand why people love it. And I think it is a great show. And I am happy that I watched it, mm-hmm. but it's not my kind of show. Yeah. So as much as I can recognize the merits of it objectively, subjectively, it's not necessarily the type of thing that would draw me. I assume that would be your answer, actually, yeah. even though even though you watched <laughs> it here on the show. That's what happens when you've known someone for 30 plus years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you excited for the, the for the season two? Are you definitely planning to watch it? I am mildly interested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am very, I'm very excited for season two. But how about Celia? How about you? I'm excited for season two. And like, like this, this sh- show has all the stuff that like I love. <laughs> so there's like the drama and I've talked about this before, but I, I love travel porn. Severance? You're thinking of the wrong show. Oh, what show am I thinking of? Succession. Oh, yes, yes. I love Succession. 
<laughs> yes. As I was say, you love travel porn. It's like, what, from the cubicle to the bathroom? Like, where, where are they going? <laughs> that gray institutional look. I just want exactly. to be there. <laughs> she likes to luxuriate in the, 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 the cubicle culture. Neon overhead light cubicles that turns everyone's skin green. Yes. So anyway, let's talk about what you're talking about. I agree with Sona that I would not put this at the top of my list because it does not have travel porn and because it's like a quirky series, acquired taste. Not everyone's going to think this is a fantastic series, but if you break it down, I see why they would put it there as structurally it's really well done and the acting is impressive and I do like the mystery involved. Did it grip me? I would not go there. I, I would assume that I had liked this more than, than you guys had. And also, like I mentioned, I think that the reason it's at number one on this critics list is because critics obviously watch a lot of shows. There's a lot of generic shows, mostly generic. So seeing anything that kind of breaks the mold a little bit is obviously Which going it to- Which definitely does. No exactly. Is going to always get a bias in that direction. For me, I really do love it. I, I think that, first of all, I love shows that make me reflect in the moment as I'm watching them. And for example, seeing these people, the dichotomy between their home lives and their work lives, they're not even aware, speaking of like not being aware of yourself, they're not aware of the tension between these two characters, but we are, you know, it's like, it gives me an insight into them that they can't have. And that I find kind of fascinating as I'm watching it. And of course I had a great cliffhanger ending, you know, so that's just another thing that was part of the reason that the show became so viral and so popular. Amazing cliffhanger. I yeah. agree. Um, okay. Number two. Better Call Saul, season six, which of course, once again, we covered here on the show. Please do catch up on those. People have been catching up on those also. Good thing. We have a pretty good batting average for covering these shows, by the way, Sona. Well, thanks to you for picking them. <laughs> yes, I do spend a ridiculous amount of time picking the shows we're going to cover on the show. Sona, I get like the worst shows. <laughs> yeah, you get by the cream the of the cop, Sona. You get the cream of the cop. Yeah, <laughs> Sona, you. you're getting all the good series. I'm getting like Magic Houses. Sorry, I'm grandfathered in. So there are some benefits to that. Exactly. 70 year old sexy guys. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. We, you know what? We'll, we'll save that for the disappointment section because, yeah, we have some shows we covered here, mostly that Celia covered with me that were not that good. Although there's one that we covered with Sona that I think is going to definitely make my disappointment list, but we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, I think I know what it is. But Better Call Saul, <laughs> yeah. uh, loved it. Best slow burn. And I am mm -hmm. not one for a slow burn, but. I am so happy that I invested the time in this. I think it pays off in so many different ways, whether you are a Breaking Bad fan or not. I think um, there's plenty to enjoy just on its own, standalone. But if you're a Breaking Bad fan, it adds other dimensions to what you're watching. Just so well-constructed, well-thought-out. I can't think of a single bad thing to say about it, except that, yes, it can be very slow to wait for a payoff. I know Celia has not watched any of season six, which I think is coming to Netflix in January. If it does indeed come out when they're anticipating it will, uh, do check out our full coverage of that final season of the show. I also thought this was an exceptional season of the show. As far as it's placement here on the list, I think it's really because it was the final season. I honestly don't even think this was the best season of Better Call Saul, but it was an exceptional season on top of many other exceptional seasons of that show. And just as a call out to the fact that to have an incredible, iconic Breaking Bad series like Breaking Bad, and then to follow it up with this prequel that is not as good as Breaking Bad, but in a completely different tone. And uh, just yeah, see, I would disagree. I think it is as good yeah. as Breaking Bad. It's just a different show. You know, it's yeah. not it's not a Breaking Bad type show. That's not what it's trying to do, I feel. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it as much. I would still prefer Breaking Bad, but but mm -hmm. not, not to disparage Better Call Saul. I think if you had to put together a list of great shows in the past, I guess, you know, Breaking Bad's more than 10 years now, so we can't do a decade, but let's say 20 years, that both of these shows are on that list, which is exceptional, extraordinary, actually extraordinary. Okay, number three, here's a show that I covered briefly with you, Celia. I had a couple episodes on this show, 
which is Andor, the Star Wars show, which I found one of the biggest surprises for me this year. Another reason I think it's so high on this list. I was so burned out on the Star Wars shows. I'm like, I am never going to watch another Star Wars movie. I am never going to watch another Star Wars series. This is just garbage. I cannot take this anymore. And then we get this incredible spy thriller that deals with like politics, the limits of control. And it's like really, really dense, incredible, and also just thrilling filmmaking. Like just a really, really exceptional TV show. I agree. And we only covered a couple of these. Yeah. And I said this during the coverage. It doesn't feel like Star Wars. No, no. I'm not complaining about that. I actually love that it doesn't feel like Star Wars. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Last consensus pick, which we also covered here, Celia, me and you. Uh, Sona's not in this conversation. I don't think, unless you caught up with this, Sona, but I don't think you did. And it is The Bear on FX. I never did. So go for it. Well, we're not going to spoil anything, but I would say The Bear, the most interesting thing about this for me, I don't love this show the way some people do. I do find it to be totally surprising. No one saw this thing coming and it became a huge hit, by the way, not only with critics, but audiences embraced it as well. A great decision that Hulu made or FX via Hulu, they released the entire show at once because I found the first couple episodes of the show compelling but grating. Intentionally, by the way, it's like these characters turn you off. It's like all the family members you really don't like hanging out with. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the relationship they have with each other. And then over the course of it, you kind of warm to them. And then you just kind of say like, yeah, I guess in this crazy sort of way, this <laughs> is a, a functional family. And you kind of fall in love with all these characters. And the entirety of the show, by the way, you can watch it in less than three hours. It's basically the length of a movie. Anyway, I thought it was one of these things that I found myself reluctantly pushing the next episode. And by the middle of the, the show, I was in love with these characters and it has a great, great ending and a great setup for season two, which is definitely coming. I think it was genius of them to release this all at once. Maybe something that the patient, for example, Sona, may have benefited from because mm-hmm. go, going week to week on this show, I would have quit before it got good. <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. How about, what, what's your opinion? So, yeah. The bear is really entertaining, but I agree with you that the first episode and i even texted this to you um wow it was annoying so (laughs) annoying everything about it the yelling the chaos the one character who's like his cousin or something almost made me stop watching he was like the most irritating person there's also an andor also an andor yeah but he's not like that in andor (laughs) no he's not Second episode, you know, I started warming up to them. And then it's what you said, where you become very involved with them. And it made me think of a couple of things. Series, either the first episode is a kind of a turnoff or it's a setup and you have to make yourself watch the second one because you see potential or it's like gripping right away. And this is the latter. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I say I think it's really genius for them to have seen what they had and say, we're not going week to week on this. We're releasing it all at once. And it worked. It paid off in spades because it became a huge success. And I think, once again, I do not think audiences would have embraced it if they weren't able to sample more of it right away. Okay. That's the consensus. That's on most people's top 10 lists. Number one, Severance is like on 70% of the top 10 lists, something crazy like that. Better Call Saul is on most number ones. It has the most number ones, but it's at number two because it's on slightly fewer top 10 lists. Andor's at number three, The Bear at number four. Okay, here's the next tier. These are on about a third of the lists. I'm going to skip one for now, Celia, because I want to bring it up later on because it's not on that many top 10 lists, but it has a lot of number ones. But you'll see why I'm going to leave this for later because I think it is... The fact that it's on relatively few top 10 lists, but has a lot of number one speaks to whether people really like this show or really don't like this show. Okay. Next on the list is Reservation Dogs. For me, I thought like the middle three episodes of the season were great. So funny. So great. Everything I love about this show. Overall, for me, this was not as strong as season one. Still though, it's such a unique thing on TV and I still love these characters. Can't wait to see another season of it. Started off a little rough, ended a little rough, middle three or four episodes, great for this season. I mean, the characters are very likable. There are episodes that I found boring. I mean, they're not that long, but the rest of it, when it's not a boring episode, is a fantastic episode. So I think you have to be invested in the characters in a way that's really deep in order to watch the whole thing. If you don't care about them, you're not going to watch it for any other reason that I can think of. Yeah. And I think that for season one, when obviously the characters are what win you over, but I think that season one works on its own in a way that season two, like you said, probably needs a little more of that handhold, or you need to have that commitment to the characters a little bit more. 
once again, like those middle three or four episodes, hilarious, like really, really strong episodes. I just thought that beginning and end, mm, you know, not as strong, but still kudos for developing a very strange show that has found an audience. All right. The next one on the list here is, and so I want to get your read on this, Abbott Elementary. So I have sampled Abbott Elementary. I don't really watch sitcoms that much, but I've been looking for sitcoms to watch this year. This is my opinion of Abbott Elementary, and I want to get your feedback on it because I know you've sampled it as well. I didn't watch the whole entire thing. I've just sampled some of the episodes that have kind of gotten the conversation going. And what I would say is if you are looking for a show, and this show does not need help, by the way, it's a huge hit. But if you're looking for like a replacement for Modern Family, maybe not even The Office, maybe Parks and Recreation is a better example where people are this kind of dysfunctional group of friends that are kind of lovingly weird. But for me, I would say like every single episode has one moment where I laugh out loud, like one. <laughs> and the rest of the time is like, oh, I like these people, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is very, which is very much like traditional sitcom television, sitcom television, which is kind of shocking to me that we're still in the world where this works because I thought like, aren't we past this? But I guess there's still an appetite for this. And, uh, and, and like I said, I, I think these characters are really lovingly drawn. I really do like them. I mean, I think it's just something that I will continue to sample here and there, not something that I'm like, I can't wait for the next episode of Abbott Elementary, right? It's definitely not mm-hmm, the case. Mm-hmm. How, how, if you sampled this too, right? What did you think of it? I agree with everything you said. I think it's, you know, heavily owes a debt to the office and Parks yes. and Rec for the structure of it, the feel of it. I think it's getting harder and harder to find a really funny show, actually. Yes, yes. Um, for whatever reason, that's just not the time we're in. I often have felt about sitcoms. If I laugh, if I really truly laugh once during the episode, yes, it was worth my time. Yep. In that way, I think it meets that standard. I <laughs> yes. wonder if the way I really enjoyed The Office because there were so many inside jokes for people who actually work in offices, like right. points of relation, right. maybe for teachers, right. that's what this feels like. And so Absolutely. it resonates in mm-hmm. a way. Yep. For them, at a level that it wouldn't resonate for me right now, it's in the, and this is kind of in the category of like, if it's on, I wouldn't change the channel, but right. I'm not mm-hmm. glued to the television either. Yeah. I mean, my opinion of this show is exactly that. Like every once in a while, one of their shows go viral, like the Halloween episode. And I'm like, I'll tune in for that. And that's it. <laughs> like if it doesn't like mm-hmm, kind of break mm-hmm. through, I'm not going to check it out, but I do like it. And like I said, if you are looking for another show like that, then this is definitely slots right in there. And the other thing I'd agree with what you said is there is at least, it's almost like it's structured this way, script wise. There's at least one gag, I would say, per episode that makes me laugh out loud. And that's right. it. It's basically just mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. one gag that they're paying off here. But I do have a recommendation for, you say there's not that much funny. I have a show that I watch that I laugh multiple times and it's still on the air. It's still a new current show. So I will, uh, I'll, I'll save that for, for funniest moments later. What a cliffhanger. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I have one too. If you want to laugh out loud, like maybe yeah. two times per episode. Can I <laughs> yeah. tell it? Can oh, I well, tell you? Well, we, we could, well, do you want, is it a current show or do you want to save it for the awards? It's fairly, I mean, it's not super current. So I, I don't think it could go in the awards. Can I, I'm just going to tell you. Sure. It's Catastrophe on oh, Amazon Prime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the funniest show that I've seen lately. Sona, you will totally relate. I have watched some episodes of it, and this is embarrassing to admit. I really struggle with accents. <laughs> <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I should turn on the subtitles, maybe, because I spend a lot of time preoccupied with just like, what did they say? Did I get that right? Oh, no, turn I don't them know. on. I think because... I have some hearing issues, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, the banter is so good in this show. This guy accidentally gets this woman pregnant. And they barely know each other. They mm-hmm, just have like mm-hmm. a sexathon for a week. And now she's pregnant and she's like 40. And he decides he's going to marry her and move to England to be with this woman that he accidentally impregnated. And the two of them are so great together. I think it's funny. Yeah, that show, that show has gotten, I mean, that used to be like at the top of critics list every single year when it was running. So uh, yeah, if people haven't caught up with that. It's still available on Amazon Prime. So definitely. Check that out. That was like one of maybe the first shows that Amazon Prime kind of put them on the map um, for winning a lot of awards. But it's uh, it's done now, but it's uh, definitely evergreen if, if you'd like to check that out. Okay, next on the list uh, of the, cons- uh, the, these are not consensus picks. There are about, about a third of the lists, but I just want to run through them very quickly. 
because we've covered most of them here on the show. One is Barry is the next one on the list, which I think I would put this higher on the list. I loved Barry. Barry season four coming this year as well. Something to look forward to in 2023. I mean, this show is not even a sitcom anymore. It's become so dark, so bizarre, and uh, just a great season of television. Like, And so, and I know you've never caught up with Barry, but I highly recommend if you have some time to get caught up on that because that's a great, great show. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. So it really is on my list if I ever find a way to manufacture time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next on the list, The White Lotus. Of course, we talked about that ad nauseum. By the way, very importantly here on the list, just like two weeks ago when they've started compiling these top 10 lists, The White Lotus wasn't even on here because of course they hadn't finished. And just in the past week, week and a half, it's jumped all the way to number nine. I would not be surprised at all if this climbs even higher on the list when all the other lists come in. I thought it was really strong, better than season one. Of course, anybody wants to get our opinion of that, just check out the show. We literally have been talking about this for hours and hours per week. So <laughs> check that out. Also on the list here, a show I never finished watching, but I definitely have to catch up on it before season two comes, which is Pachinko, which I thought was just mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful TV shows I've ever seen. And just with the subtitles and you know not being in English and stuff, you know, this is just me being a lazy viewer and with so many other things to watch. I didn't go back to this, but just absolutely Hey, I just told you I have a problem with shows that are in English, so (laughs) no judgment from me. Subtitles for you makes it easier, right? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing but reading, right? That's right. And then uh, just a couple more to touch base on. The House of the Dragon actually ranked pretty highly here on the list. I actually thought this was a lot of fun. I know people didn't like it. And uh, just some other ones here. Oh, one question I have for you, Celia, because you did finish the show and I gave up on it. Number 13 here on the list is Bad Sisters. Was that worth following through to, to the end? What did you think? I don't know what happened at the end because oh, my free subscription ran out. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was pretty good up until about episode four. It's all about the sisters and their relationship and how the husband of the one sister who is like the biggest asshole ever. But I don't even know how they killed him or if they killed him. So, yeah, I'm not the person to answer. The the, ep- the show that I skipped here, Celia, was The Rehearsal, which is ranked all the way up at number six. It's actually not on tons of top 10 lists, but it has a lot of high rankings on top 10 lists, which is the reason it ranked so high. And I think that speaks to the show itself because some people love this show. I love, by the way, love Nathan for you, love that show. I think it's hysterically, hysterically funny. I did not like The Rehearsal. <laughs> I got turned off by the show over the course of the show. I, I just didn't even know what it was about anymore. As opposed to Nathan for you, I think is geniusly trying to deconstruct like these kind of get rich quick scams. And you know, the fact that he's able to infiltrate all these people's lives in his, <laughs> a bizarre way. And he does a similar thing with the rehearsal, but it just didn't work for me. It didn't. And, and they must've spent a fortune. Sona, you would like the rehearsal because it's like, comes off like a reality show. <laughs> I don't know if they scripted any of this stuff, but it is so unbelievably weird if all of this was naturally evolving. It's definitely worth watching because it's so bizarre, but I, it, it, just, is. it just didn't work for me. Do, do you know anything about this show, Sona? I watched one episode of this show because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many people were talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I watched the first episode. Which is the best episode, by the way. I felt like I just didn't get it. Okay. Then yeah, do not watch any more of it. <laughs> the first episode <laughs> is the, the for me the first episode is the best episode because it has an internal payoff and the rest mm-hmm. of the show mm-hmm. honestly does not. It gets so. Uh, did you ever see Schenectady, uh, Synecdoche, New York? Did you ever see that movie? No, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. I love that movie, but it's like a real life version of that where it's like a rehearsal of a rehearsal of a rehearsal, and then you start to like not even know where reality ends anymore and how much of this is scripted and how many of these people are actors or are the actors playing real people or real people playing actors, and it gets so convoluted, but it doesn't help tie any themes together. Once again, not beyond what I got. I honestly feel like I found the first episode so compelling and shockingly funny and bizarre in this kind of like playing out with how much of reality is performance nowadays. And I feel like I got all of that in episode one and then it got so convoluted Mm -hmm. to tell us what more of the same. I'm like, I I got it like eight Mm -hmm. hours ago, dude. (laughs) I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of this else added anything to it after that. That's why I'm wondering if, if if it was scripted because it becomes so like weird because the concept is weird to begin with. But then these people don't really go along with his plan, is my assumption, unless they scripted it. And then what he has to do to save his project is possibly creepy 
<laughs> I yeah. thought so. I'm like, that's weird. And then that's weirder. And that's how I felt about the whole thing. So I agree that it would, it, it just got very convoluted, but imagine none of this was scripted and this all really happened. Right. That's where I get fascinated. For me, I feel like so much of it is contrived that I can't suspend my disbelief enough to get what he's trying to do. And like I said, I feel like I got it all in episode one. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Let's move on to our personal opinions, not the lists, but Sona, let's start with you. I can go first, but please do me the favor of picking a category for me. What was the favorite show you watched all year now that we've seen that list? Either something we covered here on the show or something you were watching on your own. Wow. Tall order. Um, <laughs> easy, it easy. probably was Better Call Saul because I love a final season. I love mm -hmm. the wrapping up of all the plot lines or not, uh, especially when it's written by such brilliant people that pay such attention to detail. So I thought there was a lot to enjoy about that. Also, I really loved a show that we didn't cover, but I talk about it every chance I get, which is Never Have I Ever. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought just captures the high school experience so beautifully, so brilliantly. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. It's very poignant in its way, while also being very funny. I really, really enjoyed that. And I think that has one more season left, if I'm yes. not mm -hmm. mistaken. Yeah, this year's the last for that as well. Celia, did you have a, a favorite? My favorites are, I loved Station Eleven, I just have to say. I think that series was genius. And maybe it just dropped at the wrong time and didn't find the audience because people were so in dread of still... Getting COVID. The, yeah, <laughs> the pandemic. And it was too close to home, maybe, but brilliant series, in my opinion. I do love Fleischman is in trouble so far. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I don't know oh, how good it's going to end. So, yeah, I agree. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. If this oh. was over, I think it would definitely be on my top 10 for the year. Absolutely. Yeah. Love that. And I always love The Crown. <laughs> I keep bringing it up. I love The Crown so much for so many reasons. It's like, a historical drama with different people covered on each episode. It turns into an anthology at points. And then the travel porn that I keep talking about, it is the most beautiful series. I can't believe it. And then I have like Runners Up, Atlanta was really, really yeah. good. Mm -hmm. yeah. House of the Dragons mm -hmm. was also very beautiful. And The Handmaid's Tale... Quick question about The Crown. I've heard, and not having seen the show, but I've heard that this season, a lot of people were not impressed with this season. Was this a weaker season for you? It was a little bit of a weaker season because they switched up the characters again, the actors who played. So it's hard to catch up. When they go from one period to the next, a lot of the season, I think, rides on who is playing the queen now and who is playing... Prince Charles or who is Diana now. And I think the Diana in this last season was fantastic. Not positive how I felt about Charles. The queen was much different than last season's queen. So it's hard to catch up there. I was thrown off by it, except Diana. Wow. Perfectly cast Diana. And also it didn't have the focus that the other seasons had. The other seasons were very focused on the queen, for example, and her experience and her husband. And now they have shifted it almost into a different series where you're seeing more of the perspective of the Diana marriage situation. So it doesn't feel smoothly integrated. I feel like there was a bump along the way, but I still love the crown. For me, I'm just going to call out, I mean, I've already spoken on these, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Severance, for the reasons I said, you know, abstract character study in its own bizarre way. I feel that it's not as off-putting as people may feel. You might have to do that, some of that work yourself, but uh, I thought it was really a great show and a great premise, a great cliffhanger for season two, like I mentioned. Better Call Saul, for all the reasons Sona said, a great capper to one of the best shows of our recent era. Andor already said how great that was. Stuff I, I, oh, and of course, Barry, which I also called out already. Not even a comedy anymore, but still one of the funniest shows and just another surreal, bizarre uh, show. And I do want to call out, by the way, so you made a really good point. I think the reason Station Eleven didn't, uh, it got a bunch of Emmy awards, mostly for technical things. But I think kind of the reason that show was forgotten was because 
it came out in December, but then ran into January. So mm. people didn't know, do I put it on my 2021 list? Do I put it on my 2022 list? Everybody who's putting a 2021 list together hadn't seen the end of the show. So they probably didn't put it on the list. It's such a great show. And it has found an audience, not as great an audience as it probably should have found. Maybe if they had released it all at once or put it in a different slot, it would have done better. But it is a beautiful and touching uh, you know, kind of reflection on what would happen if the society fell apart and not in a negative way. Like it's this idea that we can rebuild the world if we needed to. And I think that's kind of amazing. It's about parenting. It's about survival. It's about building, writing something, creating something that lasts, you know, even if it's just something you wrote for yourself and how it could have a long tail historically. It's, it's really an amazing piece of work. And by the way, I had read that book and didn't love the book. I thought the show is better than the book. So it's kind of a rare thing as well. And Atlanta, you know, I had a lot of problems, like a lot of people did with that final two seasons of Atlanta that dropped this year. And it is on this list, by the way, this critics list, but a little lower down, I think, partially because of some of the unevenness of it. But as I mentioned to Celia, when we talked about the finale of that show, even at its worst, it's so much more ambitious than what anybody else is trying to do. And when it connects, it is like some of the best TV you'll ever see. So it's just, just as a cap to what an incredible thing that they've achieved and how it's changed television, by the way. You know, you look at Barry, the same creative team behind Atlanta created Barry and the surreal comedy and horror <laughs> of Barry comes right from Atlanta and Reservation Dogs, which is another kind of niche cultural, definitely inspired by Atlanta. And uh, just the fact that Atlanta is kind of a blueprint for a lot of what we consider prestige shows, Severance, maybe even uh, in some ways as well. So it's like really kind of changed television and it's you know ended this year and it's still great. And everybody, hey- watch it. It's on Hulu. You can watch it now, catch up with it, rewatch it if you've watched it before. It's brilliant. Oh, and one thing I want to call out that I don't think is on anybody's lists, but I thought was definitely worth calling out, um, and maybe I'll call it out in some of the other categories, was the English, I thought was really impressive. I had a lot of issues with the way the show is structured, but at its best, that's some of the best television I saw all year. It's pretty incredible. I'm in the corner, watching you kiss her. So I'm going to wrap up the conversation there for now. We have more categories to go through, including performers, funniest shows, saddest shows, worst decisions, just to name a few. And that will be next week's episode where we wrap up the finale of Fleischman is in Trouble. But for this episode, let's talk about Me Time, the seventh episode of Fleischman is in Trouble. All right, so we saw the seventh, the penultimate episode of Fleischman called Me Time. I'll do a very, very quick recap because there's not that much to recap in this episode. I have to interject right off the bat. How can you say not that much happened in this episode? We got a whole other side of the story. (laughs) I misspoke. I misspoke. I apologize. What I was going to say is that we can get into the conversation right away because the, a plot summary of what happened would be very yeah. short. And then okay. we could just get into yeah. the, the, the conversation rather than doing beat by beat because basically <laughs> that this is all happening inside of her head, right? So the, the long and short of it is that we pick up, just like last week, by the way, we pick up immediately where the previous episode so left off where Libby, Lizzie, Libby, Libby. Libby. <laughs> I always tr- interject their name. Switch their names. <laughs> Libby uh, has seen Rachel in the park. Rachel does not look the usual Rachel. She seems discombobulated. She's in sweatpants and a sports jacket. Forlornly holding a bagel. Yes, sadly holding a bagel. And we find out her backstory and her story is so discombobulated (laughs) at the beginning that she has to piece it together. But eventually we get the full narration of the chronology of what's been happening to Rachel this whole entire time. And it goes much further back than just the past few weeks when she's been missing And that's basically it. I mean, it comes out that she has really had a nervous breakdown and that's basically the setup. So I really wanted to spend the rest of the time just delving into her performance, what we suspect this breakdown might be, some of the underlying issues there in her personality that have led to it. I want to just say that Claire Danes steals the show as soon as this episode comes on. She's so amazing at being stressed out what was that show she was in? She was a bipolar character. 
Yes, Homeland. I agree with you. I think she should get an Emmy for this. And I much preferred watching this breakdown to the Carrie Matheson breakdowns in <laughs> Homeland, where I was like, Carrie, just take your meds. You can do this. You can be good at this. It's okay. Stay on the medication. Here, I had so much more sympathy than I ever had um, for her character in Homeland. I don't know if you feel the same, Celia. I do. And when she is doing that stress relieving scream thing, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I wonder if she really did that or if somebody played with the audio. I would not be able to speak for like an hour or maybe (laughs) longer after that scream. But the way she just exudes her anxiety, the depression, it's so believable. I got stressed out watching her. Well, I think Celia also, I don't know if you felt this way, but I feel like for any working mom, it's kind of a like there, but for the grace of God, go I. (laughs) (laughs) I could find myself like this, given a certain turn of events, right? Like I feel many days that I'm barely holding it together. So I think very easy to relate. Yeah, you try and keep all of these balls in the air and you feel like no one is properly appreciating all the hard work and effort and exhaustion. And, you know, one day you might just snap. Like when she wants her me time. <laughs> yeah. So she could cry. Kim and I watch this together and this hilarious line where they say, yes, that being a stay-at-home mom is the most difficult job. And he goes that she says, <laughs> they allow these women to have this fiction, you know, having a full-time job and being a mom is the worst job, right? Literally, it's oh, two jobs. Well, <laughs> this is a minefield, but <laughs> yes. if I have to take a side, I think being a stay-at-home mom to a child that is not in school is much harder than having an escape where you can have adult conversation for eight hours a day, use your brain in a different way for eight hours a day. I think being on call 24-7 as a mom to a kid that's like under five is absolutely exhausting. I think some women are cut out for it and thrive in it. I am not one of those people. So I think it does depend on your nature. However, I think there's an argument to be made for what she's saying once the kids start school and you get a nice long break in the middle of the day. Celia, what do you think? I think that being a preschool teacher and then a stay-at-home mom (laughs) is even worse. (laughs) That's masochism. By the way. Oh, no, I did it when the kids were little so I could bring them to the preschool. And yeah, my mom did that too. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, you're making some side money, but you're not no. putting your kids in daycare. So it actually comes out to bank. I think that people don't really understand. And I don't want to just say women because there are dads out there who are stay-at-home dads or they're in the same position that this, that stay-at-home moms are in, whatever. traditionally get a lot more grace from other people than moms. As to like, you're doing your best. I understand sometimes kids are a terror and you're doing your best. Whereas the mom is like, more of like, control your kid. What's wrong with you? And well, I mean, I've seen both sides. What I, do, what I could say is when you say you're doing your best, it's true. Like when I did do preschool and certain, some of the kids would come in and they would be like mismatched socks. And like, I'm like, oh, daddy dropped you off today. <laughs> Okay, well, Celia, in my defense, my child purposefully chooses to wear mismatched socks and actually brought back his matching socks this morning and put oh, on a mismatch. Oh, good for pair. him. So sometimes it's a statement. <laughs> First of all, I, just to comment on some of these things, I joked with Kim while we were watching this that is this Carrie Matheson's origin story? Like, does she now quit her family and then become a CIA operative? But, but that- <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I was going to say, which is so true to suburban life, but I, even though this is not suburban life, the comment she makes about how trying to be friends with these women becomes a job of their own because we have, and I think we all are familiar with groups of these women who hang out together. They have all their kids in the same after school curricular activities and they go out to dinner together. They go out to lunch together. They go out, they have happy hours. They have the girls night out. And she jokes that it's actually like another full-time job being friends with them. I, I think both of you have probably never fallen prey to this type of uh, cultural pressure to have these group of women around you, but did that seem I true to you? I have not, but I think much like Rachel, it's like a combination of jealousy 
and being thankful that you're not like that because like they have each other and that's a built-in network that can be really supportive. But then at the same time, yes, it just seems like so much work and so much effort to just keep up with them. So kind of a double-edged sword, I think. It depends what kind of person you are. Like if you're a person who doesn't want a lot of space and is comforted by constantly having people to reach out to, then it would be great. But if you're like, I'm more like I need space, so I can't be committed to a bunch of people expecting me to show up for stuff all the time, since I am a mom and I do have a job, I don't want to have to commit myself to a whole bunch of other people. And Claire Danes is a complicated character because of her background. Yeah. And how she has abandonment issues, apparently. And her being put in a position where these women are accepting of her and then they're not adds an extra stress because of the rejection now also. Because she really is not really part of their crowd. I'll give you my general impression of the show and then we can touch on a few of these things. A lot of the information that's being conveyed in the show, I thought was pretty well done. As a matter of fact, Kim had a friend of hers who had like a nervous breakdown when she finished medical school. And her description of what happened to her is literally what you see in the show. She at one point sat in her car outside the hospital for four hours because she thought the train kept passing in front of her and she couldn't get out of the car. And she had completely lost track of time. Like we see Claire Danes lose here. She was- like not catatonic. She was functionally walking around and she could not speak. Like she literally could not speak. But then after the fact, she was fully verbal in being able to describe what had happened to her. But in the moment she was like, we were talking in the coffee room and I didn't know if it was happening or if it was in my head. So she was like in this kind of fugue state. And uh, I think that's what they convey here, right? Where she's waking up in her bed, days are passing. She's repeating the same behavior. She's seeing her daughter in the room doing her type of behavioral tics. And we don't know if that's actually happening or not. And so I think it's a a realistic portrayal of what probably happens to these people in these manic episodes. Mm -hmm. I thought, and this is my negative commentary on it. And I think maybe it is a issue I have with Claire Danes. And it's sometimes something I felt that when I watched Homeland too, I just found the performance a little too much, you know, she went overwrought. Yeah. It seemed a little too much for me. And it, made me honestly like this is my least favorite episode of the show even though i feel like are you kidding me wow (laughs) i know i know that's why i wanted to save my commentary to the end even though uh i can appreciate what they're trying to convey it just didn't work for me i just didn't And, and maybe like i said i think it is a claire danes issue i may have okay i wonder too though if this is part of the story construction Because something that was such a key thing here is the unreliable narrator, right? Right, And Lizzie, Libby, (laughs) now I'm doing it, (laughs) spells it out at the end, how she had been seeing everything from Toby's point of view and never asking about the other point of view. And this is through her perspective. She said she's piecing together the story. It's not quite making sense. The events are not in the right order. So I wonder if maybe some of it was purposefully exaggerated. That this is now like a secondhand dream sequence type thing that she's right. trying to piece together. I do want to call out, by the way, that the end of the episode I thought was really, it really salvaged the episode for me because I thought the ending was really beautiful. It's just something that I personally always feel over and over again watching this episode that if someone had just walked in the door and had taken her perspective, had just considered her perspective for a minute, this would not have gotten as bad as it did. And that's that moment when she's laying in bed and she says to Libby that, you know, I always liked you. I just thought you didn't like me. And of course it reminds you that we've been seeing all of these nasty snide looks that she's been giving these people this whole entire time. We're seeing it only from their point of view. We've never been compassionate to her point of view. So I love that. Yeah, you have. (laughs) Yes, you have. So, so I, so that's where I say it might just be the performance that got me in a bad way because mm-hmm. I appreciated that. I was touched. I was moved by the ending, like her just trying to cuddle up and having this one moment where someone is there to watch her so that she can sleep. That's it. That's all she wanted to do. But some of the histrionics over the course of the, maybe that's just my temperament. I don't go for that. And it just 
went on. I mean, she's having a nervous breakdown. Understandable. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's my, I say this is my taste. You would have a nervous breakdown much more quietly and in a much more respectful, dignified manner. Oh, I definitely would. I would just sit in the corner and keep it to myself. (laughs) Don't bother anybody. Just, yeah, curl up in a ball and come out when you're done. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I agree with Sona. I did not not enjoy the histrionics. I thought that they added to the entire story. Yeah, it really hit home how disturbed she is, I felt. Me too. And as we've talked about before, really puts Toby in a terrible light. And we've been flagging this all along. Why aren't you more concerned about where she is? Mm -hmm. And these, you know, supposed friends of hers, which clearly are not really friends, but you find your... I assume she was napping with that Rothberg guy in the park, because if you came across a friend of yours napping in Central Park in the middle of the day, randomly in like, you know, all disheveled looking, why would you not act on that? If I don't think you even have to be a friend. I think even just an acquaintance would be asking, are you okay? Do you need some help? And when you see the husband minutes later saying, hey, this is what I saw. Is she all right? Um, I mean, in this way, like her whole network has failed her, right? Because they've all had signs that something is amiss and everyone is just thinking of themselves to the yep. point that Toby's telling his kids life goes on without mom. Like, I mean, <laughs> right. come on, man. Yeah. I agree. When I heard she was in the park, I was like, did she have a breakdown? Yes. Is she yep. schizophrenic yep. or some other kind of a mental disturbance? And then I did hear the theory about, oh, she must be napping with her friend. Right. You oh, know, this was overlooking just her. Theory, so yeah, yeah, this was my, I was, because no, I thought I, people I thought would about be more it. alarmed otherwise. Right. <laughs> I was thinking about it and I'm like, I guess that's possible. I've never fallen asleep in a park, but I have seen people on picnic blankets taking a nap. So, you know, maybe. But then when I see what really happened, I agree with Sona where they should have been way more concerned. And I would have been like, I just saw your wife sleeping in the park on the grass, Mm -hmm. nobody around. She seemed off. They're concerned when they question her, they say, are you okay? And then maybe that's another subtext of the show is this. And luckily since the pandemic, we finally are having an honest conversation about mental health in this country. You think about how many people you know, probably committed suicide, famous people even, that could have been avoided if there was just kind of a more honest conversation about mental health. And maybe that's kind of the shame here because multiple times people look at her and like say, are you okay? But then when we saw the other perspectives on the story, no one ever told Toby, yeah, I saw her in a park and she didn't look right. They are like ashamed. Right, you should check on her. Absolutely. The least you can do when you happen to run into the husband just hours <laughs> right. later, minutes later, I don't right, know. Right. Say something seemed amiss. Is she okay? Yeah. I do want to call out a couple other scenes here it, rather than just bagging on the parts of the performance I didn't like. I thought when she shows up at the woman who uh, did the um, presidentrix or whatever, she the one woman who did mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that play, when she shows up because you know she basically bailed on this woman, and but she- she finds out that the deal went through, you know, she was just happy that yeah. she didn't screw up her life. And like that moment where she, you know, says, I'm just like, so proud of you was that was a really, really great scene. So that's my more, see, that's my more, my speed. I like, I like it a little more understated. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I do like over the top. The nervous <laughs> breakdown was not understated enough for you. <laughs> Yeah. I did like the scream too. I did like when she's screaming, that sustained scream. And she says it was a scream for her kids and everything. That was also mm-hmm. very, very moving. Then I kind of started getting tired. <laughs> I, I want the, I want the, the, I could have watched 30 another minute hour. I could have watched too. another hour. <laughs> I thought it was great. I needed that chopped down by 20 minutes. You guys needed it more of it. I needed less. <laughs> but can I say just plot wise, I didn't realize that this Rothberg guy is her friend, supposed friend's mm-hmm. husband. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. guys get that? I didn't did. know that. I didn't know that until now. No, I didn't. Right, because she announces his name at the table. I can't yep. remember which friends were there and which were not, but that's kind of crazy talk to announce your friend's right. husband's name as your free pass. <laughs> In front of everybody, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he had the flashback to, oh, it must be this guy, that's when I figured it out. Oh, really? Maybe that's when he started to show up at her um, offices after he found out like through the grapevine mm, about the mm-hmm. Yeah, because people talk. You're definitely going to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that guy was extra gross. He's like, you're just supposed to be fun. What what are you not in a good mood about? I got to go. Let's talk about that a little bit too. Is like she is, even before she has the full breakdown, she's a little delusional here where he says like, you know, I have to spend some time in Los Angeles. And she's like, I'm thinking about opening an office in Los Angeles. But it seems like in her mind, she has some fantasy of this grand romance with him, even though he's like saying like, hey, I can, you're supposedly your best friend. I can get a weekend away from her. Like, let's run off together for a weekend. She has a completely different version of what's going to happen. And once again, she, she's like saying, I'm going to take my kids away to California so I can hang out with this dude. Uh, I don't think he wants that. Well, <laughs> so, he does say he loves her. Yes, but that's, I agree and, and she does really have, want that, but right. you know, <laughs> obviously by the time we get to the end and she has those abandonment issues, issues, obviously. So maybe the failure of the marriage is somehow, you know, it's definitely contributing, but maybe it's primarily leading to some of this, these bad decisions. Even at that moment, me and Kim were like, she played the cart before the horse here for a big time. <laughs> <laughs> she has so many problems though. She's so anal retentive when she goes to that rape Survivors. support group. Support group, yeah. She can't even speak. She goes yeah. into a really good Claire Danes psychotic okay. episode. She's really good at that, by the way. I don't yes. want it to be typecast only in these situations, but she is fantastic at this. That scene was heartbreaking. She doesn't want to lie about having been a rape victim survivor. So she doesn't know what to do. And then that just leads to a pure emotional breakdown. And then the women all gather around him, her. And it's like, curative for her, right? Like she didn't have that before. So I think that that's beautiful. If she had told her story to these rape survivors, I think that they would have 100% understood her distress and not judged her. Like your trauma is not a rape. I don't feel like these women would have thought that. It is really horrible what happened to her. It's a different type of violation. Absolutely. Yeah. I think she just could not speak. Like she couldn't even tell them what happened. Yeah. I could see both sides of it. I mean, I think in the end, like the line that I remember that I really thought was heartbreaking from this episode is she says, you know, and there I was alone after designing my whole life. So I would never be alone. Right, right. And I think it's that loneliness that she's been running from and trying to, as she says, like construct an entire life around the fact that she has that wound and trying to heal that wound. And now all of that in her mind was for nothing, right? She failed. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just being taken away from her piece by piece, everything that she thinks she had built piece by piece, it's coming apart. The friends that she thought she had, she didn't have the husband she thought she had, she didn't have the affair partner that she thought she had, she didn't have. You know, um, her children aren't there all the time anymore. And that statement, right, that like they wouldn't even miss you or whatever. Right. That can be your undoing, I think. And it is for her. One of the things that it conveys really well, I think, in this episode, there's a need oftentimes to have a very simplified version of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Like, what did Toby do to set her off, et cetera, right? And what I think you see here is that nobody knew that this was going to be so triggering for her. And we see her full backstory, right? Her mom dies. She Mm -hmm. feels that her grandmother's maybe a little cold to her. And then we see that flashback to her in school and those Mm -hmm. girls and how she, and maybe those girls aren't giving her the cold shoulder, but it's her perception that she's on the out, Mm -hmm. she's an outsider. And then she comes to New York and she's an outsider again. And then part of what drives her, she's always chasing status and she's terrified of losing the status that she's achieved. It seems almost pathological But I think what's kind of important there is that you don't know what drives people. And maybe they don't even know what's driving them. I bet you Toby, for example, did not realize how she is so fixated on this very thing, like not losing what she has achieved, Mm -hmm. whether it's status or whether it's the people around her. Uh, I don't think anyone would have suspected that she was this uh, fragile in this way. And I don't think she would want to share that with anybody. So it's something that she's kept private this whole time. I think that's really well done. I also believe she picked Toby because she thought he would be safe. I think that is something that we've seen before. He has a stable family. He is going to help her build a family. He didn't judge her. I think this is mostly in her own mind. She feels she's being judged because she doesn't have the right accent. She doesn't come from the right places. Oh, no, you haven't spent enough time on the Upper East Side. She is (laughs) being judged. I definitely have not. Yeah. I have not. (laughs) Absolutely uh, being judged. (laughs) And then she just, like she specifically says in this episode, he never judged her that way. And uh, and that was something Mm -hmm. new to her, right? Something she needed. He also, I'm sure, thought that she was out of his league. 
So he's probably extremely attentive, like really worshiping her, genuinely can't believe she'd want to be with him. And this would be attractive to her because of her issues. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely not alone in this. When you think about the fact how once he started dating her, that he becomes alienated from his uh, original, like those Jewish camp friends that he's been so close with. And now he's reconnecting with specifically in this show. That's not all on her. She he had to simply say, hey, I'm doing this tonight. That's all. He just had to say, <laughs> just had to say that every once in a while. That's all. That's all he had to do. Look at how her perspective is on being offered that job from mm-hmm. Sam Rothberg, right? The, right? the million dollar cannabis job or whatever right. it is. You know, when he brings it up, she says, I don't think he's going to want it. Right. He likes the patient interface. But yeah, it can't hurt to ask. Right. And in Toby's mind, right, she's orchestrated this whole yes. trip around yes. him taking mm-hmm. this job and strong arming him into taking this job from her perspective. And who knows where the truth really is. Right. But from her perspective, it was much more innocuous of like, hey, you never know if something falls in your lap, maybe you're going to want it. It's a million dollars a year. Why not? Right. You know what I got out of the show is that you don't really know what someone else is thinking, obviously. And sometimes you don't know what you're thinking or even what your motivations are. How difficult are relationships with everyone? Of course. Like what we have to do to even have any kind of a relationship with your kids or your husband or your coworkers. And then the people in your house become more of a stressor than people outside because they see everything. Life is hard. Yes. (laughs) No disagreement here. Uh, To your point, Celia, we all live inside of our heads exclusively. We only interact with the version of somebody that we have inside of our minds. It's not the person. It's just what they present to us and then the way we interpret it. So it's like layers and layers of abstraction. And I think that is something that's being represented here is that people in the end are unknowable, even like we've discussed on this show before, even to yourself, (laughs) oftentimes you may be unknowable, right? Over the course of your life. All you can try to do is to be true to as as true to yourself as you can possibly be. And then, you know, I think that specifically in this episode, we see that she's trying to be a good mom. She's trying to run this business. She's trying to be true to herself. She's trying to juggle all these things at the same time. And literally it gave her a nervous breakdown, right? But I think that we all don't have nervous breakdowns, but we can all sympathize with being pulled apart. And also specifically when you're trying to be something, whatever role model you're trying to model yourself after is probably not even real. So it's like, it will drive you crazy basically, especially when you have like this kind of cultural milieu, right? That like you've mentioned, Sona, that like the Upper East Side could be a very judgmental Mm -hmm. and uh, stressful society try to fit into. All right. So one more episode. So we will talk again sometime next week. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody, all your listeners. And of course, Sona and Celia as well. Happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays. This is so fun this year. (laughs) 